With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. No! Oh, my God. How could he do that? Are you on Donate? What? Charles Darwin. The nerds is where it's at. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Brever and alongside me is Logan Camden. And today we are going to be breaking down our thoughts on every series that we have seen more action from in the NBA playoffs since our last podcast. It was just two nights ago. So we've got six games six series, and we'll start with the most important one. It certainly felt it was on the slate tonight, the most discussed one, that being Kings Warriors. Logan, the dubs without Draymond suspended for his little stomp on DeMontis Sabonis. The dubs down 2-0, headed home, and they got a massive win. So what did you think were the keys to that? What were your biggest takeaways? First, I just wonder what the consensus was around this game, and I really wonder why people wrote Golden State off. Like, did we really expect Golden State to just take their ball and go home? This team's dominant at home, and I expected a... Mm-hmm. I expected a a really good uh, performance from them with Draymond or without. Like, this is a team with championship DNA. Their backs are against the wall. I'm not saying I expected a, a win like this because it was very convincing, um, and I thought the Dubs played a complete game on both ends of the floor. And on top of that, they have the best player on the floor. So I, I just don't really understand why I get it, right? Teams go up 2-0. We're ready to to crown the Sacramento Kings, to send them to the Western Conference Finals or something like that. That's not how basketball works, man. That's why we play seven games, because we need to see the best team and who that team is. Um, so I do think home court advantage played into that. I mean, the Chase Center was rocking from start to finish. Uh, you get two really quick transition buckets. Like, it felt like we were in for a really good Warriors performance. I first do just want to give uh, Stephen Curry all of his flowers in this game. I yep. mean, absolute masterclass. 36-6-3, 12 of 25, 6-12 from deep. And for the majority of this game... You're not getting a whole lot from anybody else. God bless Andrew Wiggins. God bless Kevin Looney because, I mean, you know, with the other offensive performances in this game, 
uh, it was going to be a tall task. Jordan Poole does not step up. He gets to the line a lot. He was getting downhill more, and that's something that I thought the Warriors did well all game long, just attacking the rim and getting easier looks all game long. Poole goes 4 of 13, 1 of 7 from deep. Clay has a very mediocre shooting performance by Clay standards. And you just don't get a whole lot of offense from the other pieces. That being said, though, I also think on the other end of the floor, the Doves played really good defense. And on top of that, the Kings did cool down a little bit, which I think is as ex- expected. Malik Monk does not have a great game. I don't think we expected Malik Monk to keep this going throughout the entire series, as much fun as it is. Um, he was a big part of those first two wins. He goes one of nine. Sabonis struggles, and I know his numbers straight up 15, 16, and 4 may not look hard. I mean, they were pressuring him. They forced a lot of Sabonis turnovers uh, throughout mm-hmm. this game. And you did have off-shooting nights from a lot of guys. So I think the biggest thing in this game, we saw a regression to the means from both of these teams. We saw the Warriors get back to the level that we expected them to play at on both sides of the floor. And we saw the Kings kind of come back to earth in the first two games in this series. I want to ask you something pretty broadly, though, Carson, that we can extrapolate from this game uh, individually. Because you talked about Draymond's on-off numbers in our last podcast Mm -hmm. and how big of a loss it would be in this game and how hard it would be for the Warriors to pull out a win. Um, Better on-off numbers this season than Stephen Curry, even. Do you think the Warriors' offense is better without Draymond Green? I mean, it was a lot more spaced out. Every guy on the floor can at least score a little bit and space the floor better than Draymond Green. So I just want to start there. Do you think the Warriors' offense looked better without Draymond Green? And is that something, if so, that we can expect moving forward? I don't think it's an issue of Draymond. I think it's an issue of Draymond and Looney. You're playing two non-scoring threats, two non-spacers in your most popular lineups. That's not ideal for offensive production. I certainly think, though, that Draymond is a preferable guy because he's a genius playmaker. And I will say, what a night from Looney. Awesome decision-making and a legendary night on the glass. Like, a few Warriors role guys stepped up in a big way. Nobody more than him. 20 boards, 9 assists. He was phenomenal. He was huge on that battle in the interior with Sabonis. And he was huge on the dubs overall, having a great night on the glass, which I think was a key to them winning so convincingly at the very least. But that's what I think we're going to see more of, is we're going to see more of lineups with just one of the two. And I think it's going to be more often going small with Draymond. And that's what I said. I think that their best option probably offensively and arguably defensively is going small with Draymond at the five because you can just get more skill out there and you have more guys who can guard this incredibly quick, lethal shooting Kings offense. So I think that it's really more of a matter of playing the two of them together. But look, you still need Looney in spots because although... Draymond can also guard Sabonis well. He and Looney are really the two answers there. It is nice to be able to have Draymond playing other roles as a helper, switching on to anybody, whoever it's needed, without having to be a bit more attached to Sabonis as he would be if they, I think, go more small. Because Sabonis is a guy who can legitimately attack and crush mismatches. Like, you put a small guy on him, he's big, he's strong, he's got touch. But... Looney was incredible in his minutes tonight. So even if he's only playing 18 to 20 a night now that Draymond's back, I think he can still have a legitimate impact on the glass. And that's valuable. And I thought that this was just an awesome night 
in terms of how many different guys stepped up for the dubs, and it was not in the way that I expected because my thought was without Draymond, they're probably going to have to win this game in a shootout because they haven't been able to contain the Kings guards, and now you're losing your best defensive weapon. So I thought, okay, we're going to need to have great Steph, good Jordan Poole who we hadn't had, probably good Clay, and we didn't get good Clay or good Poole really. I mean, Poole had his moments, but it was just... Steph, remarkable, vintage stuff. We can step up in a big way offensively, but other than that, dude, I thought Dante DiVincenzo played an amazing game. He's one of my favorite dubs, and it's so much about the little things. It's about his versatility, his contributions in every single phase of the game. Eight boards, eight assists, four steals, constantly hustling, good positional rebounder, very good decision maker, and can shoot the lights out. He just didn't really tonight. And then I thought... On a night where the dubs were shorthanded, Moses Moody being able to come in, play quality 16 minutes, get his 13, knock down his shots, was big because they needed that little bit of offensive spark. And you don't expect it to come from Moody, but he was confidently stepping into shots and he was making them. But the bottom line, biggest takeaway to me was just that this was Steph at his best and it was a do or die moment. They needed this game, no question. My thought was, if they win this game without Draymond, I still think they'll win the series. If they don't, then I think that it's an insurmountable deficit based on what this historical precedent tells us, down 3-0 and without home court advantage. But he was incredible. I thought out of pick and roll, as we've talked about, he was getting downhill, at least to that floater range and all the way to the rim, and he was finishing really well, timing his finishes well around when that help was coming with just this incredible touch that he has. And then it was also unbelievable perimeter shot making. I mean, he was just off ball, off the catch, sensational, off the dribble. So it was an all-around great Steph game. And it felt like on this night, you had the best player on the court, as we've all known by far. But he was in a different stratosphere. And that was huge because the Dubs did defend well. They rebounded really well. They did a lot of the little things well. The role guys stepped up. But if they don't have this monster Steph game, they don't have enough offensive production to come out with a win here. So I do still think the series is a battle, no doubt about it, because this was an off night from the Kings. I mean, they were 24% from deep. This is now their second straight brutal shooting night, and really nobody played particularly well. And I don't know that I would say the Dubs like have the solve to the... Malik Fox backcourt. I think those guys are still going to have a lot of success getting into the lane. It's just part of it was they missed a lot of those jumpers or the floaters as compared to usual, but they're still a real threat. And we still haven't had that like Sabonis playmaking masterclass. We've talked about how the Kings offense has turned more to the guards creating out of isolation pick and roll as compared to the normal handoffs off ball movement that defines them that Sabonis is so valuable in so the Kings definitely have a higher level to reach but the dubs do as well and you get Draymond back and I mean if they do get good pool if they do get good clay they have the best player on the court by so far and they do still have the higher defensive ceiling and I do think they should win this series I think so too, and it makes the Dubs dropping game one that much more crucial because that game was down to the wire. It felt like the Warriors could almost... I thought the Dubs were were going to pull that one out. Fox just goes absolutely lethal 
uh, at the end of that game. And I think you're right. I, I, I think this is going to be a—I think this is going to go seven. It's just the difficulty of are the Dubs going to be able to steal one on the road? That's why I emphasize— Game one being so crucial because the Dubs have been so bad on that end. They've looked disoriented. They've looked, I mean, if we're being honest, game one was one of the best road games we've seen from the Dubs all year, I thought. Mm -hmm. And the Kings were just better at getting buckets down that late stretch. That's the dilemma to me because I can see, I think you're right, I can see the Dubs completely playing better. I can see the Kings playing better. The issue is, are the Warriors going to be able to steal one on the road because that's imperative because they're the lower seed here. And... That's tough. It's very tough. Um, so yeah, I, I don't, I don't know, man. That's a dilemma. I, are you feeling any differently about this series? I know you weren't feeling very confident in Game Two, and I know it's hard to put you on the spot after a game like this. I, did this reinvigorate you? Are you more confident in the Dubs now? Yeah, I think the Dubs are going to win because the scariest thing to me was that they lost their second best player. I mean. My thought after game two, and this is what I went around saying to everybody, I still think it's dubs and seven. But when they lost Draymond, I was like, boy, you're going to need a great Steph game. You're going to need a great Steph game. And listen, I just didn't expect them to defend this well. And also the Kings had an off night offensively. And their lethal weapons were not so lethal tonight. But yeah, I do think the dubs are better. And I think that they have the, as great as the Kings offense is, the more undeniable offensive engine in Steph Curry. And then I think that they have the defensive pieces who are more capable of matching up, right? Like I do think that we can see a fully healthy Warriors defense with Gary Payton, the second with Wiggins, with Draymond cut off some more Fox drives, force him to settle a bit more, do the same with Monk. Like it's not going to be easy, but can they do that enough to where having supernova Steph Curry and maybe actually Clay and Poole shooting well and Wiggins, who has been shooting great, and Draymond making great decisions, can they get enough of that on both ends to win? Yeah, I think so, and I would bet on it. So I thought this was a game that the Kings had to seize the opportunity of because they could have slit the throat here. This could have been it, and... It wasn't. Instead, it was the exact opposite. It was dubs all night, and it was a lot of fun to see. So I think the dubs still have a lot to prove. I don't think we have seen the consistency from many of their supporting pieces from them on really either side of the ball to put them in like a contending tier. We haven't seen the ceilings even that we've seen from like the Lakers. But this reminds you that when you have Steph Curry and you defend well, and you rebound well, and you make good decisions all around. I do think that's a really important part of this, what you get from DiVincenzo and Looney. Warriors can win a lot of games. So, huge, huge win for them. And I'll be at Game 4 on Sunday. And let me tell you, I got a feeling in my bones that it's going to be a win for the Warriors. Let's talk about Lakers-Grizzlies. Because... LA came out in game one and was so impressive and so dominant down the home stretch of that game that it looked as if they certainly belonged in that conversation as a top tier contender out West. And they looked better than anybody out West in the opening weekend. And then they come out, John Moran out with the hand injury and they lay an absolute dud and they get pretty much manhandled by the Grizzlies throughout the game. They had their little pushes, but never 
were in control of this game. So what's your take on that? How concerned are you about this L.A. performance? Yeah, Carson, I'm not really concerned about this individual performance from L.A., but it has to be frustrating as a Lakers fan, as two guys that have heavily endorsed the Lakers coming into these playoffs, that it's yet another game that they sleepwalk through, it almost feels like, that this is a turning point in the series. I fundamentally believe that. Game two, you know, on the road, this is a big game, man. Without John Morant, this is the time to seize the day, to seize the opportunity, and to swing this series. Maybe give yourself a chance at a sweep at home or a gentleman's sweep in an extra game. I mean, this game was absolutely crucial to Los Angeles. And they got close at points in this game. They cut the lead to 73-67 in the third, 94-88 in the fourth. Felt like we were just, we were so close to the Lakers just stealing this one at the finish line. And I think there are some big keys that the Lakers need to be better at. One, you need a better shooting and overall offensive performance from D'Lo and Schroeder. Um, overall, they go 7-26 from deep. They have to shoot better. D'Lo, 5-7 and 4, excuse me, on 2-11 of 11 and 1-5 of 5 from deep. Through two games, D'Lo's at 12-6-6 six six on 32-29 splits. Flat out, he has to be better. And something that I've just noted offensively overall, the Grizzlies' offense is just more nuanced and clever. These guys know how to play together. You can tell the Lakers haven't. There's just not a lot of off-ball movement. They stagnate a lot. It's a lot of ball-watching and not a lot of movement. Another thing, you've got to cut down on turnovers. The Grizzlies were plus 11 in points off turnovers. They scored 20 off of them. Uh, I think another key, AD has to dominate more. 13-9-3 on 4-14 from the field. Um, He's got Tillman and Triple J on him most of the game. But the biggest thing to me, and this is the thing that we have hammered home about LA all since this team has been constructed basically at the trade deadline and at the start of the playoffs, LeBron and L.A., they just have to be engaged defensively. The Lakers have to hustle more. And like I said, it just felt like they slept walk through this game. And I thought there were two, I thought there were three key plays at the end of this game that really emphasized the Lakers' overall effort. First, I'm going to point the finger at LeBron on two plays. LeBron let Dylan Brooks shoot two late threes here that were uncontested, that were just wide open, and he let them pull it. I know it's Dylan Brooks. I know he shoots 40% from the field. He's a bum. I get it, LeBron. In a pickup game, I'd probably let him shoot too. But you know what? This isn't a pickup game. This is the second game of the first round of the NBA playoffs, and this is a crucial game that you need to steal when the other team star player is out. It's just inherently easier to win. The first three that he let Brooks shoot, Two screens, LeBron runs through both of them, and it's just like, oh, I'll let Brooks shoot. Can't let that happen. Again, later in the game, they just do a swing pass to Brooks, and LeBron's like, yeah, I'll let you shoot, Dylan. Wets it in his mouth again. And the third play that I want to point to is uh, five Lakers. Five Lakers are surrounding the ball on a missed shot, and Xavier Tillman gets, I think, the most crucial offensive rebound of this game. And I think those three plays exemplify the Lakers' effort overall in this game. You have to hustle more. You have got to get—this is when little plays matter. 
This is when you have to go all out and contest the bad jump shooter, even though it's a low percentage shot. You have to put your hand up on Dylan Brooks. You have to close out better. You have to hustle more on the glass and get those rebounds. And AD doesn't bo- LeBron doesn't box out Tillman on that one. Tillman runs right around and ball bounces off. Literally all the Lakers are just standing there. And Tillman grabs that rebound. Um, those are the keys to me, I think, for L.A. Because you get a good Roy game. You get a good offensive LeBron game. Um, those go to waste. It's frustrating, man. And I don't want to diss the Grizzlies. The Grizzlies out-hustled them. They played a really clever game. Xavier Tillman played a really good game. Um, and it wasn't... It was weird, man. It's not like Tillman was like going to work or anything. It was just like he was moving into open space in the paint and taking advantage of what they gave him. That's what was confusing to me is it's like... It, it, they just weren't getting to space and like keeping their head on a swivel and trying to defend him. Um, yeah, so I, I think that I, this is the Grizzlies' signature, right, my man? It's you got out hustled, you got outworked. That's what the Grizzlies do, man. They've been known for winning games without their star player and being a great team, regardless of if John Morant, if Triple J is out there or not. They're going to be a sweaty team, and uh, yeah, I, I think. They just outsweated the Lakers in game two, man. I got to see more hustle. I got to see that dog in them. And frankly, I'm not surprised. These are the two MO of the teams. The Grizzlies hustle, and the Lakers like to sleepwalk through games that should be easy for them. So I'm, I wasn't surprised, but I expect more, man. I expect more. This is a crucial game for LA. It's not a surprising outcome. I agree with you because this is the Lakers experience. It's up and it's down. And oftentimes it is more correlated with effort than it should be, especially in a playoff setting. So I don't think the Lakers viewed this as a must win game at all, because I think that in their eyes, they already got the road when they need, and now they'll go home and they are clearly more talented. I do think that they're clearly better when they are playing anywhere close to their ceiling, basically every single Laker, with the exception of Rui, Reeves played okay, had a bad game. So I don't want to put too much stock into this. It is frustrating, but it's also like you said, the Grizzlies have a better win percentage in Jaws' tenure without him than with him, Logan. They're 37-24 and 24 without him. It's a 60% win rate. And I do think in a lot of ways... The offense is smarter. I mean, the Tyus Jones-Xavier Tillman pick and roll is as clean, as fluid as damn near anything. You have great decision-making from Tyus, the ability to make any pass, to hit anything he needs from the floater range, and then you have a really instinctual roller in Xavier Tillman who is a good touch finisher around the rim and is just going to be efficient, and it's just a very poised offense when Tyus is in control. So that's what we've known. I mean, their offense has only been a couple points per 100 possessions better with Jaw compared to Tyus. Jaw scores with below league average efficiency, right? He can be a complete liability as a jump shooter. He has never really demonstrated in terms of the star class that we tend to view him in that level of winning impact. And we've known this and we've had these conversations before. He's had some big time moments in the playoffs where it's just, I'm going to impose myself, get to the rim over and over and over again, playmaking impact and feed off of that. And he takes over games, but it's not always been a case of like, wow, look at how much better we're doing in the jaw minutes because sometimes he can X people out a bit too, by getting so 
focused on I'm going to dominate every possession. And with Tyus, it's the polar opposite. I mean, he is the ultimate unselfish floor general. So I was not surprised that the Grizzlies came out and then there was just the complete gap in urgency. Like we talk about the dubs fighting on the glass, Steph finding his best version of himself, right? That was an urgent performance. And this was the exact opposite for the Lakers. And the Grizzlies did have urgency because they needed to win this game without their best player. So the few things that I did not like from the Lakers. First of all, this was just not a good AD game, and I'm not going to freak out about it because AD has been so good overall, but these are the realities of his offensive game. This is why I had him at number 10 in the guys I would want for the playoffs and not in my top five like you did, like when I had this conversation with Jason Timpf, he did. It's because he's not a great offensive engine. He's not an offensive engine at all. He can be a great scorer, in an isolated sense, but he's also not consistent enough there to be among the top class guys. And he's so reliant on his skilled shot making, his skilled finishing from that short, you know, 10 to 12 foot area with his hooks and his floaters and his turnarounds that he never bullies anyone. He never attacks a mismatch other than I'm bigger than you so I can shoot over you a bit more easily. Like you get Dylan Brooks switched onto him. Dylan Brooks, a very good defender, obviously a physical guy, but he's just going to go to the exact same shots that he would have triple J's on him. If anybody is on him and in this game his finishing sucked and he had some other misses around the rim that were just very uncharacteristic, but still had some amazing defensive moments. So I'm not too worried about AD, but this is the reality of the roller coaster with him. The two things that I do want to dial in on. First of all, D'Angelo Russell being in a high volume role in this offense concerns me more by the day. And when they first got him, I thought, well, this is necessary. They need more skilled shot making. They need more playmaking. This offense doesn't have enough without a D'Lo. Now, though, with the level we've seen from Austin Reeves, who is better at everything other than pure scoring and also at this point, pure scoring compared to D'Lo, there's just stretches where it's like D'Lo is so reliant on the tough jump shots that just aren't particularly efficient. And so when that's not falling, he can be a negative and he can really suck up possessions. Like D'Lo's always been a great technical passer, but he's never been a great playmaker because he's not fundamentally unselfish. So I do think there's upside with him. And this is what I've said in the aggregate, him, Reeves, and Schroeder. Yeah, I feel pretty solid about that as a guard combination. But when two of the three of them are off, it can be rough. And D'Lo is the one who's scariest to me because he's going to get more minutes than a Schroeder. He's going to be entrusted with more responsibility. The other thing that I just want to see change is LeBron's level because uh, game one, right, he sleepwalked through. We talked about it. He was off ball a lot. He was careless with the ball, and they didn't need him because Reeves stepped up. Rui shot the hell out of the ball. AD was pretty darn good. But this game, he was more aggressive but he still wasn't controlling the game like LeBron James controls the game. He didn't have that sort of just chokehold on it. He didn't have the masterful playmaking. And he was also and has been really reliant on the jump shot. If it's just him being off ball, being a catch and shooter, or if it's just settling for a pull up. And we know that it hasn't been great this year for him overall. I'm okay with LeBron taking pull up threes. His jump shot's perfectly fine. I'm not too worried about the fact that it was a down year. 
but it's nothing in comparison to LeBron asserting himself as this unstoppable bull getting to the rim, not to mention what that does for his playmaking potential if it's finding somebody in the dunker spot, a cutter, kicking out to a shooter. So I don't like that he's 4 of 16 from 3 through 2 games. I don't like that he only has 8 assists through 2 games. And right now, I feel pretty darn good about the order I had my top 10 guys for the playoffs who I would want in with one exception, and that was that I had LeBron James at number five because LeBron has clearly been 10 out of 10 at this level we've seen through two games. And listen, I was putting him that high based on a projection. He wasn't a top five player this year. It was a faith in the level of scoring dominance, playmaking dominance, control of the game, defensive capability that he can reach. And I just don't think he's cared enough through two games. So I'm not going to freak out about it, but it's like, man, it's the playoffs, Bron. At some point, he's going to have to turn it up. I think he will, but I just want to actually see that. And it makes you wonder, when is when is the switch going to get flipped? When do the, you know, it, all at the end of this regular season, yeah. you're sitting there going, oh, okay, well, you know, it's a regular, who cares? They just need to get into the play-in. Oh, we got into the play-in, that's cool, man. Uh, it, you're yeah. just wondering, when is it going to get flipped? Because it's like, there are. That's what makes this so frustrating about LeBron is because on individual possessions, you see it, Carson. Like, uh, I can't remember who was guarding him at the top of the key, but it was beautiful. There was a moment of hesitation with LeBron where he did a little hezzy, and boom! Once he, like, lulled them to sleep, he exploded to the rack, and I was like, ugh! It fired me up. It, like, sent me back to 2020, yeah. Bron. It sent me back to Miami. It sent me back to Cleveland in, you know, from 2015 to 2018, I was like, yes, LeBron, that that bull in a china shop, that you give me that lane, I'm going to make you pay. That's the best version of LeBron, and it is a real concern, and it's not a concern of, can we see that LeBron? I know that LeBron's in there. I would never question mm-hmm. the king. I know that LeBron's in there. The question is, is it going to be too late? Is it going to be too late in this series? Are they going to sleepwalk through another one to two games and the Grizzlies are going to even up the series? And the Grizzlies are going to take a lead in the series and then it's like, you just wonder, is it going to be too late? And I don't want it to be. I don't expect that. I expect the Lakers to win this. And you know what? I think the Lakers win this even if LeBron doesn't turn into playoff, you know, King James mode. But I just don't want it to be too late for the Lakers in this playoff run when LeBron finally decides oh shit, I need to be the best version of myself. I know he's in there, and it is frustrating, especially as fans, because we know it. We know what LeBron can still do at this age, and uh, I want to see it sooner rather than later, because I think it's a... I mean this, and this is no shot at Memphis or what they've done, because I think this is a really good unit and a really good team. I think if the Lakers were locked in and gave a fuck, I think the Lakers could 4-0 these boys. I mean that. I think they could have swept the table on them, especially with Giles in this game. But we're not going to get that. So it's probably going to go six or maybe seven if we're being realistic. Also, last thing, I don't know if you want to add on to that point. Shout out John Conchar, dude. Stuffed AD like twice in the second <laughs> quarter. I Man, that blew my mind. It was like, uh, it's not an apples to apples comparison. But to me, it was like Yao Ming getting stuffed by Nate Robinson. It was that level of block. Um, <laughs> I cannot believe Conchar, especially on that first one, dude, because the second Conchar's help side on the first one, that was just him timing it up with AD. Um, that was really impressive. <laughs> Shout out to the boy, John Conchar. I think 
What we're seeing with LeBron is clearly he's picking his spots. That's why I'm not too concerned about it. I believe in his ceiling. I believe in this Lakers ceiling. I would like to see it more consistently, but listen, I picked them to go to the Western Conference Finals. I think they could absolutely win the West. And maybe LeBron really just does not care about these first two games much because he <laughs> let Austin Reeves take over, and that worked in game one. And then in this game, it wasn't a must-win for the Lakers, and they certainly didn't treat it as one. So... Maybe he's also playing chess and he's saying, all right, guys, I know that I can handle this stage. Let's see Austin Reeves, D'Lo, Schroeder, Rui, all these guys consistently perform. I don't know what it is. I do think bottom line, though, that we are seeing more than anything else, not maximum effort, but it's just the guy's 38. I would like to see that turbo level and know that it's there when it matters. I do believe that it is. I just want to see it. Like, Dylan Brooks is coming out here disrespecting him, saying I don't believe in anybody till they give me 40. Come on, Bron. Give him 40. I know that you can, but I'm not worried about the Lakers. I'm very confident they are going to win this series with or without Jaw. So, speaking of star abstinences, we saw Kawhi Leonard miss Game 3 of the Suns-Clippers series, which has been very competitive and still was even without him in this game due to a right knee sprain. So that was a surprising announcement. We don't really know what the long-term plan is here, when he's going to be back. But what were your takeaways from the Suns picking up that win, taking the 2-1 lead, Logan? I mean, that kind of closes the book on L.A., right? Like, I, I if Kawhi's not out there, I mean, it was kind of, to me, they're just oh, succeeding yeah. this series. Um, here you go, guys. Uh really made me scratch my head, especially with some of the games that you got from some of these Clippers. Uh, now, I don't think Russ has as big of a game if Kawhi is out there. You know what I mean? Russ dominated the ball, but he played a good game. I was impressed. This is a Russell Westbrook game that I was uh, quite pleased with. Um, yeah, I mean, I think this series is over. Uh, Devin Booker needs his flowers, yeah. dude. Holy shit. Like, there's nobody on the Clippers that can guard this dude. And what I liked was such a stark contrast from games, uh, uh, from the first couple games, man, is that Book got downhill. Book got to the rack, and that's what I love seeing. And it was, oh, the footwork, man, the touch, the where he's going to get to in space. It was just so, he makes it look so easy, dude, and it's not. Like, I was so impressed mm -hmm. with Book's ability to just, slither through the defense and get to the rack and get easy layups because he made it look he made it look so easy and it's not um when you get a performance like that from book i mean you don't really need a whole lot from the other guys kd plays a decent game um I, to me though this game raised a a few red flags about me um about phoenix that i mean we've known about right chris paul can't get the fucking lid off the basket man at a point you still wonder this is why the this is why the Phoenix Suns did this trade to get Kevin Durant. Because you needed to take the pressure off of Chris Paul. Mm -hmm. That's something that we've been talking about all the second half of the season. We talked about it at the trade deadline. That's why you go out and get KD. To alleviate the pressure. But you're playing the Clippers, man. You're playing Norman Powell, Eric Gordon, and Russell Westbrook. Like, Chris Paul, they're going to need CP at some point. He cannot shit the bed like this in big games. Even is just, and again, his role has been alleviated. First couple of games, you see him taking pull-up jumpers. They need him in space. The Clippers are kind of locking stuff down. They can't get a whole lot of movement. 
CP is taking catch-and-shoot jumpers in this thing, man, and he's clanging. Uh, at some point, the Phoenix Suns are going to need Chris Paul, and you can't have a game like this on a big stage. I thought defensively, I thought CP was all right. Um, and again, they still have, I think, fundamentally the two best players, uh, excuse me, the two best scorers on the planet, flat out. At some point, I still think they're going to need Chris Paul to pull his weight. Wait, do you mean the best two scorers on one team? Or... I mean, I'd probably put Steph above, like, Book, but... Yeah, I think there's a couple guys that got to go above Book. Right, book's book's very death, high up but... there for me, though. I mean, this is the best scoring tandem in basketball, though, bar none. Um, yeah. You know, I, I still don't love this bench. I don't love Chris Paul, but the guy that I think is more frustrating than anybody else to watch is DeAndre Ayton. And... Does he give a fuck, Carson? Does he care? <laughs> that's, that's my thing, dude. I don't see. I, 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 and I don't mean to pick on the guy because I don't know. I don't know DeAndre Aiden personally, so I can't tell. But I can tell you what I see on the court, and I don't see a guy with like a whole lot of heart or a guy that I don't know, man, really wants it. And it's frustrating that again, a guy that's one his skill set, what he does on the court offensively, seven foot tall, 280 pounds, a tank, could dominate anybody on the low block because he's strong as an ox, still lays stuff up, still goes soft up on the uh, up on the glass, still takes bad jump shots. And in this one, did not play a great, you know, first couple shifts. You look at the last... I think the Clippers maybe should have gone small earlier in this game, and maybe they should go small the rest of the way. That's the way you pick apart the Suns. You have some bad closeouts here by Aiden late when they swing the ball around the uh, key, get some open threes, knock them down because Aiden wants to patrol the paint and wants to sit down there. Two, the glass. I know he gets two pretty crucial rebounds here. But when the tallest guy on the other side of the court is six foot five, you should be swallowing up every rebound, DeAndre. Like, DeAndre Aiden's going to have to be better. I think point blank. With a depth, with a bench this thin, DeAndre Aiden and Chris Ball are just going to have to be better as the playoffs go along to, um, for the yeah. Suns to win the title. I mean, I don't think that's not a take. That's just point blank. And Aiden is so frustrating, dude. That's just Aiden is one of the most frustrating, I think, players in basketball to watch night to night in effort, in heart, in where he should be. You know, you talked about Triple J and how Triple J has taken leaps and bounds, and that's something we didn't even touch on in Grizzlies-Lakers. I was so impressed again with Triple J when he got a smaller guy on him to lower his shoulder, to big body the guy, and just take him to the rack. You're too little, buddy. I'm going to go get a bucket on you. Deal with it. That's what Triple J should always been doing, and he's finally doing it. And there is still a massive gap in between what DeAndre Ayton should be and what DeAndre Ayton is. Mm -hmm. Like, let me ask you this, Carson. I mean, this is a genuine question. Maybe some people would laugh me out of the room for asking this. Would you rather have Kevin Looney or DeAndre Ayton? I would rather have Ayton. I mean, there's certainly a higher ceiling, but there are nights where Looney is better. No doubt about it. It's just like if Ayton gave me 90% of the effort that mm -hmm. Looney gave, Aiden's a beast, man. I I don't know. I, I felt like again tonight I was just disappointment with I was just disappointed with his with his level of effort, man. Um yeah, I, I, I was 
Suns are going to roll in this series. The Suns are great. Booker is one of the best scorers on planet Earth, and I'm so proud of him for getting downhill more. That's how the Suns are going to eat in these playoffs. They need guys to get consistent, easy offense. Um, I, I'm still just once again disappointed in DeAndre Ayton and Chris Paul, man, and they got to be better for the Suns to really do some damage in these playoffs. It's a fascinating Western Conference, man, because nobody will, and we're still early in the playoffs, but at this point just cement themselves as the favorite. The Suns were my pick to win the West, and I feel okay about that. But I don't feel great because I do agree that both CP3 and Aiton need to be more consistently good. And the depth is still not great, as we've talked about, and sometimes is a real problem. But we have seen these last couple games why you believe in the ceiling, and it's just the fact that Book and KD and Tandem can get to a completely unstoppable level in terms of scoring. And it's just pure shot making a lot of the time. This was a three level masterclass from Book. I mean, he got to the rim at will. He got to his floaters at will. He got to his mid range game at will. He made three shots from beyond the arc. Like, just awesome. And so KD got 28 on 15 shots, and it felt like you barely even noticed it by comparison. And so that's what you believe in. That's what you buy into. And then you hope the complementary pieces are good enough. Tory Craig, dude, cannot miss. I mean, what an unbelievable series he's had. And I thought Josh Okogie, and those are the two supporting pieces who, once you're talking about beyond that top four, I've liked the most because of their defensive value with Craig, the shooting, with Okogie, the ability as a slasher. And they've both delivered. I mean, Tory Craig is dropping almost 20 a night. He's... 11 of 16 from deep in this series and Okogi in this game secured a bunch of extra possessions for him got five offensive boards in his 21 minutes and had a couple really nice cuts a nice drive so he didn't knock down a three and that's the thing that's going to come and go with him but that athleticism that ability to attack the painted area remains and he also got a couple steals like he just did the little stuff. And the Suns need those guys to do the little stuff, as we've talked about. They need to secure the extra possessions. They need the guys who are going to really give consistent effort defensively and just thrive in complementary roles. So, yeah, I don't think the Suns are a bona fide super team. And we saw game one, some of the downsides. We saw tonight. They cannot contain these dynamic athletic guards. I mean, Russ got to the rim at will. Norman Powell, it was a combination of great pull-up jump shooting, but also just too quick, too quick for this entire team, and that's a problem. Now, again, I don't know that there's a ton of matchups they're going to draw that are going to exploit that a ton. The Clippers are one of them because they play with so much space, and they do have two guys that are that quick. You play against, say, the Nuggets. Jamal is going to do more work as a pull-up jump shooter, let's say Western Conference Finals, you get the Lakers, they're going to present other issues because this interior defense needs to be better too, but not that same one, unless Schroeder's pretty darn quick, but I don't really view him as that kind of night-to-night impact guy. But bottom line is, I think this team needs to be better defensively, and a lot of the questions about them remain. But the thing that compels us, the thing that makes us view them as a contender at all, is also delivering, and that is promising in its own right. Let's talk Sixers-Nets, Logan. I think this series is over. Uh, it's 3 nothing Philly at this point, and the last two games have been competitive, and Brooklyn has had leads in both of them, but they just haven't been able to hold on. 
I think really at this point, let's talk about this from Philly's perspective. Are you feeling better about them? And how do you think they fit into that scope of the Eastern Conference contenders? I do want to briefly talk about this game. Uh, I was sure I was rooting for Brooklyn very hard. They <laughs> in in every every game in this series, man, uh, they have come out the gates really hot and played a really good first quarter. And early in this game, swarming the ball, Nick Claxton gets hot. Um, they come out of the break, third quarter, they catch fire, man. They were getting stops, they were throwing doubles, they were playing chaotic basketball. Camp Johnson has a big quarter. They get out in transition. Like, I was like, okay, Brooklyn, get a game. You know, I mean, for pride. For pride. Get a game for mm-hmm. the boys, man. Just just for something to take home. Um, fourth quarter, I thought the Sixers made a really good adjustment. Instead of camping and B down there in the lane and starting there, they moved five out. And that's where I'm going to start with Philly and what makes them so dangerous. All these combinations with Embiid on the floor, Honestly, with him uh, not out there on the floor, uh, they anybody on the floor can kill you, especially when they go five out. And I mean from the P.J. Tuckers of the world knocking down catch-and-shoot jumpers to Maxi being able to kill you from anywhere on the court to Tobias Harris being able to kill you from anywhere on the court to the bench to Melton being able to get downhill to Shake Milton if he's getting P.T. to make shots to... Jalen McDaniels, if they're running five out and you're throwing doubles because inevitably if you're facing up against Joel Embiid, you're probably going to have to throw some his way, they can kill you offensively. Um, And the thing that I like too, uh, Kevin Harlan said this on the broadcast, just 17% of this team's shots come from mid-range. Philly likes shooting threes. They like shooting stuff close to the rack. Um, And I think offensively I don't really have any questions about this team outside of James Harden. Um, at one point in this game, um, in the second quarter, Harlan mentioned this too. Harden was one of eight inside five feet in this series. I mentioned this on our last podcast. That's a real issue. He gets too easy like layups here late in this game. So at this point, he's three of ten inside five feet in this series, but that's still a very major concern. Um, but I thought Maxi cemented himself. He is this team's second best offensive player, flat Ooh. out. Um, I, I just think so. I mean, Harden's a great playmaker. Harden's a great passer. I don't want to just, he's a genius. I don't want to discredit anything Harden does, but Maxie's a fucking bucket and they do not win this game without Tyrese Maxie. He scores 10 straight points at the end of this game to close it out. And Maxie's a killer, mm-hmm. man. Maxie is an absolute killer. The one spot where I think Philly doesn't match up with these other teams and my concerns moving forward against Boston, against Milwaukee, however far they travel, is in physicality and in rebounding. One, physically, Embiid falls down like six times, I think, in this game. And the one that I really didn't get was, I don't know if he slipped on Claxton's foot or something. He falls down. I mean, he even he let, he went to the locker room in the first quarter. Like Embiid... I don't know if he's just soft, if he's brittle, like he falls down. Like, well, let me tell you, at least half the falls are completely forced because he is the single most pathetic foul baiter I've ever seen in my life. It's not close. Yeah, anytime he got a little bit of contact, boom, he was dropping like a fly, dropping like a bad habit, man. Um, so I think that in series against Boston, series against uh, Milwaukee. I do think they can get beaten in the physicality department and on the glass. 
Think about this bench and think about the guys that they're running. They're running P.J. Tucker at the 4, 6, 5. Yeah, he's a decent rebounder, but you put bigger guys around him. Yeah, I mean, I know P.J. finds the ball. He's a hustler, right? But conventional possessions. Uh, you've got Jalen McDaniels off the bench. you got Georges Niang at your other big spot, too. Tobias Harris is okay. He's But I feel like in matchups against Boston and in matchups against Milwaukee, I think they're going to be able to, like I said, out-physical them, and I think beat them on the glass. And I know Embiid can eat down there, too, and he's the guy you got to worry about, but I just feel like they can out-physical those teams. Uh, night-to-night offensively, I think this team can compete, but I do wonder about them, Carson, in uh, just in rebounding and then in terms of defensive engagement night-to-night. Um yeah, I don't think we're going to learn um, anything about this series, but I do like Jock Vaughn's mentality and what he told this team throughout this series and how they played them. And that is be aggressive, be physical with this team. Just play them hard. Harden's not a tough guy, man. Embiid's not a tough guy. And Embiid, man, like you said, dude, any time is just... <laughs> he's playing it up. He's trying to foul bait. It's it's embarrassing for a guy that big, man. Um and that's the one thing that I've enjoyed from Jock Vaughn in this series. They've played the Philadelphia 76ers very physical, and guess what? All of these games have been very close. Um, maybe not up until the end, but the Nets have been in all of these games up until the third, you know, into the third quarter, and that's just by playing physical. And so that's one of my key takeaways is I think Milwaukee and Boston are going to be able to play that physical style brand of basketball, and I don't think Philly likes it. I know Harden doesn't. Harden showed it again tonight too, dude. Any switch out on the perimeter where he had to get downhill and there wasn't a clear lane, he's moving the ball around the arc. This is not a team that deals with physicality well, and that's probably my biggest concern moving forward. I mean, what's funnier than Royce O'Neal just completely sitting on Harden's right hand, knowing that he's going to go to that step back as he just dwindles the clock down that entire possession and Harden then hits him in the nuts because he still needs to get to his step back because he's not going to go to anything else. I mean, very uh, appropriate representation of the kind of basketball he's playing right now that gets him thrown out of the game, which, by the way, so strangely officiated. I mean, (laughs) we don't need to get into a whole Draymond versus Embiid treatment tangent, but I thought Embiid's kick of Claxton was more egregious, certainly more unwarranted. I mean, at least Draymond's leg was tied up, for God's sakes. I still thought Draymond should have gotten ejected. I didn't think he should have gotten suspended, but Embiid gets a flagrant one. I don't know, man. That was a kick. I mean, that's worse than what got Draymond suspended in the finals. So it's pretty bad. But I do think we need to take a long, hard look at Joel Embiid because I talked about coming into these playoffs, how much he has under-delivered on this stage. That's why I had him number eight out of all the guys I would want, despite this remarkable regular season and the level that we saw from him, historic scoring production at the big man spot. And of course, this is an interesting series because this is a team that we knew did not have the personnel to guard him one-on-one. That's what I said before we saw game one. Like, we're going to see some aggressive doubling because Claxton, as good as he is as a team defender, as a switchable guy, as a rim protector, cannot bang with 285-pound Embiid. But they have a lot of long athletes. They have a lot of good defenders. They have a lot of high-motor guys. And they have given Embiid fits. And game one... Philly still turned out a great team offense because they had this awesome shooting night. The defense was in rotation. I thought Brooklyn was not as sharp in game one as they have been ever since then. Harden had his big shooting night, 
and so Embiid didn't really have to carry this big offensive load, and they still had a dominant offensive night, and a lot of it was thanks to him because they were just doubling him relentlessly, and he didn't even have to do much to give the offense an advantage. But these last two games, I think Brooklyn has been sharper, and they have given him way more trouble. Like we talked about eight turnovers in game two. Tonight, again, 14 points, 5 of 13 shooting with 5 turnovers to 2 assists. His series stats are 20 a night, 46% from the field. He's 1 of 8 from 3, and he's got more turnovers, 5 per game, than he does assists. Which, by the way, he's had more turnovers than assists in at least, it feels like, half the playoff series in his career. So, the bottom line is, sure, he is still creating opportunities offensively for the Sixers just by how much he gets doubled, but he's not dissecting the double teams ever really. I mean, a lot of pressure, a lot of length. He loses his handle. Sometimes he gets stripped. Sometimes he's incapable of getting the ball out, making an effective pass, and more often than not, doubles coming from the weak side. He can't make an advanced pass so he's probably just like best case scenario swinging the ball and then yeah you have the defense in rotation but that's not great from your offensive superstar like if you can double Embiid and basically say okay we're gonna have we're just gonna have to work a little harder but we've taken the ball out of his hands and they don't have a significant advantage that's not good Great offensive players are supposed to be effectively unstoppable, Logan. You tell me how you take away Steph Curry. Propose me a solution. Never seen it. You tell me how you take away Nikola Jokic. You tell me how you take away LeBron James. You tell me how you take away Luka Doncic. You can't do it. You throw a lot of doubles at Joel Embiid, he's going to fail as a playmaker, he's going to struggle significantly as a shot maker, and you're going to hinder the team offense. They won this game scoring only 102 points, because Maxi stepped up and Bede was not touching the ball on late game possessions. He doesn't get credit for drawing doubles there. Maxi looked them in the eye and he made a lot of big shots. So I don't think they stand a chance, frankly, against like Boston. I think Boston is way better than them, dude. Boston has more quality guys and Harden is too up and down. And the level that Embiid is at, I'm sorry, a defense with that kind of length, personnel who can guard him better one-on-one, but everyone's going to throw doubles at him. Like, it's not going to stop. And this is where he's supposed to have gotten better, along with his growth as a jump shooter, but part of it is the decision-making, the playmaking. And it's been a bad showing from him. So we never thought Brooklyn was a threat to win this series, right? They're not a good offensive basketball team. Since the All-Star break, they were number 24 in offensive rating. I love Macau Bridges, what we've talked about. They don't have great creators here. I mean, outside of him, Cam Johnson's been their second best guy in this series. Dinwiddie's going to be super inefficient with whatever playmaking value he does bring. So that was never the question. But this series has gone poorly for Philly. There's no doubt about that because Embiid has seen this defense that we knew was going to be a question, and he's failed the test so far. So I'm sorry, Philly coming away with three wins, two of which were pretty darn competitive and in which MB didn't play well does not impress me. I'm more concerned about them. I'm more concerned about him. And this is going to remain a problem to me. Yeah, and the other thing about Boston or Milwaukee too, they're also both long defenses too. They're going to be able to recover oh, yeah. well just like Brooklyn. 
What's the dis- They're better defenses yeah. than Brooklyn. 100%. Clearly. I'm just saying that in terms of length and defenders, yeah. too, you draw Boston, Derek White, Marcus Smart, and uh, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, Robert Williams. Horford and Williams have also been two of the best at straight-up defending Joel Embiid than, you know, some other guys in the league. I think Milwaukee, you get Giannis back. I Wow. It, it does surprise me you have this little faith, though. So, I mean, you're giving them, I don't know, this is the lowest I feel like I've heard you be on Philly uh, throughout this year. I'm not I'm not surprised this coming from you, but I'm very surprised that you don't even give them a, a puncher's chance in either of those series. I mean, maybe that was hyperbolic, but I don't know. I've pretty clearly viewed them as a third, and this has made me feel only worse about them. Because we can all acknowledge that Joel Embiid is pretty much unstoppable in single coverage. But that doesn't make him an unstoppable offensive player because guess what? In the playoffs, the entire game is exploiting weaknesses, right? We all talk about, oh my God, teams are going to hunt Jokic defensively. Teams are hunting Joel Embiid offensively. I mean, of course, they're game planning around him entirely, trying to take away the fact that he is unstoppable in one respect, but he is very, very liable to make mistakes and to struggle against, like, the key defensive strategy that he's going to see. So, I'm not feeling great about Embiid. I'm not feeling great about the Sixers, but I did love this from Maxi. There has not been a bigger Maxi advocate in the world than I. I mean, I said in 2020, I tweeted this out too just because I'm proud of it. What a take, that he was the most skilled scoring guard prospect in that whole class, and then he went 21st in the draft. It's legitimately, to me, one of the all-time great draft picks, certainly, one of my favorite in the time that I've been really dialed into the entire draft process. He is a big-time shot maker, man. Always had that quickness, but he's got the change in pace. He's always had the floater game, but the reliable pull-up jump shooting where he's been nails for over a year now is just awesome. So shout-out to him. And Bede's got a lot to prove, man. Let's talk about the other big man, the other MVP candidate from this year, Nikola Jokic, Nuggets are up 2-0 on the Wolves. This one got a little bit closer than it was early, but Denver still ended up holding on. What are your thoughts? Yeah, no kidding, bro. <laughs> I mean, I wrote the T-Wolves off in this game. I turned it off. I stopped watching. I was like, okay, I guess I'll put this thing to bed. I'm not really giving Minnesota a chance. You turn it back on in the third quarter. Nobody has an answer for Anthony Edwards when he's locked in. I mean, defensively, yeah. good luck, buddy. I was so impressed um, re-watching this third quarter. Now, it was an anomaly. Uh, they were playing good defense. They were getting out in transition. Uh, they were knocking down shots. They go 17 of 21 from the field. I mean, come on, dude. That's just incredible. But Anthony Edwards is what blew me away from Minnesota, dude. He's so hard to stay in front of. He was getting downhill. And some of the tough shot-making, dude, just the one, the three-point shooting. I'm always expecting Ant. He's kind of got a two-point jumper. I'm always expecting that jumper to be kind of inconsistent. That was falling. And then he had some tough post shots, too. Um, Yeah, what a game from Anthony Edwards, dude. I was so impressed. A 41-piece against these boys. Like I said, I don't really think Denver has anybody – on the docket who can really stay in front of him. KCP, Jamal, whoever you throw at him. Ant's just explosive, dude. Uh, What I was impressed with is something that we talked about 
all regular season long and an edge that the Denver Nuggets have shown us that they have had against any team that they play. When it's the fourth quarter and the chips are down, there's nobody else I trust more in basketball to show up and close out a game. That's because they have Nikola Jokic, who creates such easy offense, but also because you got a stone-cold killer in Jamal Mm -hmm. Murray, man. Jamal Murray gets buckets. When you say his name, you got to follow it up with that. Jamal Murray gets buckets, dude. And game's on the line, 10 points in the fourth, big shots. Um, Shout out, man. MPJ has three points through three quarters in this game. And... I love Michael Porter Jr., dude. He's never, I say this about him, every time we bring him up, he has never seen a jump shot that he didn't like from the start of this fourth quarter. Catches the ball at the top of the key, puts up like a Gilbert Arenas jumper. Just, ah, fuck it. (laughs) Just fading away on Tarian Prince as Tarian Prince fouls him. Cash. Bottoms. Um, He gets 13 points in the fourth. That's the thing that I think is really encouraging about Denver, and that's something that we said with all of these questions surrounding all of these other teams out West, mm-hmm. Phoenix, their depth, Aiden and CP, the Lakers, inconsistency. Don't know if they're going to give their effort night to night. Golden State, inconsistency. Don't know what we're going to get on the road. Don't know if we're going to, what team's going to show up night to night. The Kings, don't play defense. I said this midseason, this is what we said, Carson. If the Nuggets can reach an average defensive level, This offense is going to keep coming every single night in every single quarter, and more importantly, every single possession. I never sweated this game because I love watching the Nuggets. I never sweated this game and thought that Minnesota was going to come out on top. One, first and foremost, I mean, there's a massive talent discrepancy, I think, between both of these units. But two, this is what Denver does. They're great at closing games out. They've got two really tough buckets. They've got two other guys who can knock down shots when they're open, and they've got the best offensive player on the floor who creates open shots for his teammates like nobody else I've ever seen. And again, when you're talking about all these other units, the Suns, brand new roster. The Lakers, brand new roster. The Nuggets still have that continuity um, that I just believe in. And so, no, I I, I mean, I, I wasn't surprised that the Nuggets came out on top, but yeah, especially with Jamal's performance, dude. Mm-hmm. When Jamal's doing this, and that's what we said too, man. If Jamal can get 20 to 25 a night really efficiently in spots that they need him, they needed him in this game, maybe we've all been sleeping on the Nuggets a little bit too much. You know, I don't want to get overzealous. They're still not my favorite. But I'm not counting the Denver Nuggets out whatsoever. Um, so, yeah, I, I love this game, dude. I love seeing the Nuggets when they're clicking and especially when you've got two tough shot makers like MPJ and Jamal just on. Um, so yeah, uh, this is this is this is a really fun game, and uh, I I was glad to see the Nuggets close out games the way they've been doing all season long. I think you laid out exactly the case for Denver to win the West, and this is how I felt all year. I mean, they were my favorite until the Suns went out and got a fella named Kevin Durant, and then I went back and forth, and I thought they were very tight, and even down to it, I mean. They've been one of my top two teams out West. It just happens to be that they're going to draw the Suns in the second round. And I don't know, before the playoffs, I was leaning that that top tandem of 
booking KD was just a bit too much and they could go at Jokic and pick and roll. We'll see because bottom line, this is the best offense in basketball and has been all year to me. Shout out to the Kings. I know they have the best offensive rating. There's a different level of unstoppable ease when you have Nikola Jokic, to me, the best offensive player alive at the helm. And around him, you have this incredible pull-up jump shooter in Jamal Murray. You said last episode you thought that Fox Sabonis is the best pick-and-roll duo in the NBA. I think no question it's Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic. And I think it has been since the bubble when they're out there together. It is beautiful offense. And then... You have great up spots, great spot up shooting alongside them, right? MPJ is one of the best pure shooters ever. KCP cooled down a bit in the home stretch of this season, but at one point was shooting 47% from deep, and we know that he can attack closeouts. He's an awesome complimentary wing to have. And then you have the super athlete, perfectly fine shooter, Aaron Gordon, who has some of the most special chemistry with Jokic that you've ever seen between a power forward and a center, certainly. Like, it's just so many easy connections every single night. And then Jokic is everything, man. He's an unstoppable scorer, and he's the best playmaker alive. So nobody is going to be more consistently great night to night on offense in either conference as the Denver Nuggets. And so, I mean, the T-Wolves never had a chance. I picked this to go five. Maybe Minnesota still gets a game, but Ant's great. I'm so disappointed by Cat. I don't even want to talk about it. Just a disgusting level of play from him. As we said, Gobert can't handle Jokic in single coverage because nobody can. And so it's just going to be a question of how consistently do the Suns or the Lakers reach their ceiling? Because the Lakers could theoretically look more like a traditional championship team because they have this super high two-way ceiling. They have this unstoppable top two who can physically impose themselves. And then they have the good complementary pieces. The Suns, you have the, again, undeniable top two in terms of shot making. And they have a more flawed roster in other ways. But they've been more consistent than the Lakers because of how great that top two has been at generating offense. And the Nuggets still have this questionable defensive personnel. But nobody's a better offense. And the Suns and Lakers have more to prove, in my opinion. Like, I do think that probably one of the two of them will reach their ceiling consistently enough. In Denver, the ceiling just isn't as high because of their limitations defensively. But if they don't play their best, either of those two teams, I think Denver will beat them because this offense doesn't go anywhere. In both of those teams are just more up and down. So I love the Nuggets, man. There is nothing that would make me happier than the Nuggets winning the West. Like, I really thought it was going to happen, and then the firepower got loaded up on out West because, you know, a couple teams saw an opportunity. But people who don't treat the Nuggets as if they have a legit chance to win the West don't know what they're talking about. I think the reason that we haven't talked about the Nuggets as much is they have by far the least interesting draw because they're playing the Timberwolves, and they're going to walk the Timberwolves. Like, the Lakers had to beat the Grizzlies. The Warriors had to beat the Kings. Those are legitimately good basketball teams. The T-Wolves, God bless them. It's still a shit show. <laughs> Let's talk last series here that we've seen a game two of since our last pod. Bucks Heat. It's been a ridiculous shooting display. These two teams have the highest offensive ratings in the playoffs. Of course, Giannis is out with his back contusion not sure what the exact timetable for him is but the Bucks 
were just fine and won game two without him. So what do you think about this series right now, Logan? What the heck, man? <laughs> it has been some weird <laughs> games of basketball. Uh, yeah, I, I tried to stress to people, dude, that I love the Miami Heat. I've watched so much Miami Heat basketball this year. I, I, I'm I'm weird, man. I think last year the team I watched the most basketball of was the Orlando Magic. So strange. So strange. The team that I watched the most this year was the Miami Heat, and I love using this. I've, I used this twice last episode with the Suns pull-up jump shooting and James Harden, but the Jekyll and Hyde act that is the Miami Heat uh, is another one that just night-to-night are inconsistent, and you don't know who you're going to get. One night, you get NBA Finals caliber, nasty, locked-in defense, great shooting, great ball movement, everything's clicking. And other nights, you get a team that just doesn't show up. Well, point blank, we can boil down Miami and their lackluster team to one thing. I mean, you have limited offensive creators. You have one in Jimmy Butler. Um, You have no one else out here who can create their own shot. Shout out Victor Oladipo, shout out Kyle Lowry, man. Shout out Bam Adebayo as mediocre offensive guys. Max Struess and Gabe Vincent, Duncan Robinson, I mean, they're just not creators. So the hero injury is inherently going to hurt this team way more than I think a loss of another creator on another roster would. Mm -hmm. Two, defensively, I think we all took for granted the reason people, and I still, people are saying that, oh, man, Miami could win this series. You're stupid, buddy. You're stupid if you think that. <laughs> I think we took Miami's defense for granted. By we, I don't mean us, but a lot of people took Miami's defense for granted. That this identity that they've cultivated over the past couple seasons, oh, that's just what they do. Well, no. The one, they were are completely yeah. outsized in this series. Kevin Love does not play a whole lot of minutes. And quite frankly, Kevin Love needs to play a lot of minutes for this team to even be competent on the glass. They are outsized. Not only do these smaller guys who are limited offensively can't create their own shots, they can't play defense either. They're not impactful defenders. Struess, Vincent, Duncan Robinson, I love Caleb Martin as much as the next guy. You're running a 6'5 dude at the power forward spot. So Miami's just outmatched, man. And they can get hot game to game. Sorry. The Bucks are more talented. They're a, they're more talented. They're a bigger team. They're a better team. They're a better shooting team. Yep. They're they're deeper. They have more cohesion. Like I could just I could go on for days in yeah. the ways that the Bucks are better than the Miami Heat. Um, I'm surprised, even with an injury to Giannis, that the Heat were able to get one game. Shout out Jimmy Butler for doing his thing in that game and pulling them across the finish line. I would be absolutely shocked if the Heat got another game in this series. I just think they're... Really? Maybe without Giannis? I don't know. Yeah. I, maybe. I just flat out still think the Bucks are, even without Giannis, are in just always the better team. Um, I definitely think they're better. I just don't know if they're real off four in a row without Giannis better. I'm going to stand on that. I mean, maybe Jimmy goes crazy, and maybe Bam has a, a really transcendent defensive game. The formula's there. Bam anchors yeah. the defense. Jimmy goes crazy offensively, and all the guys around them shoot really well. But they're just outmanned. They're outmatched, and they never had a shot. I think if you, 
man, dude, I do not think you know basketball if you gave if you still think the Heat can win this series. I'm I, I'm going to say that as blunt as possible. I just think the Heat are outmanned. I also think they are outmanned, and this is what we both said. I mean. Not quite as strongly, but we both still thought the Bucks were going to win this series even without Giannis because the top end of this roster, I mean, the Bucks' top two creators are more reliable than the Heat's. I mean, Jimmy is the best, but what you're getting from Bam in terms of consistency is uh, not comparable to what you get from a Holiday or a Middleton, especially when you consider the playmaking gap. And then, like, every other spot on the Bucks roster, they are so much better, dude. And what game showed this more than this? Like, are you kidding me? You had insane shooting games all wrapped into one from Ingles, from Connaughton, and from Grayson Allen. I mean, it was just an unfathomable shooting night from the Bucks overall. They were 51% from deep. But then it's like, as you said, they are so much bigger. They're so much better equipped defensively. But the size thing is just comical. Like... They've guarded Brooke Lopez with Max Struess or one of the other small wings so much in this series. And I just love it when Brooke remembers that a long time ago, he was defined by his post scoring and being the seven foot burly guy who also had legit skills. So if you're going to guard him with Max Struess, good. He should score every time. He should go out there and get 25 on 12 of 17 shooting with zero made threes, which is what he did. He doesn't need to be a floor spacer, especially when Giannis isn't out there. Let him bully. Let him bruise. And he did. And, yeah. Drew, I will say, I don't think they can guard. I think he's getting into the lane way too easily, and then his facilitating has been fantastic through two games. And the Heat just really aren't good at much, Logan. They have Jimmy Butler. And that's awesome. And they have Bam. And sometimes that's awesome. But they're a small, unathletic team that doesn't shoot the ball particularly well. They have through two games, but they're not a particularly good shooting team overall. That doesn't have really offensive creation outside of that and doesn't have defensive hounds. So it's like two guys and then, all right, let's hope that Max Struess and Gabe Vincent make their shots. So I agree. The Bucks having the number one playoff offense without Giannis is pretty good, and it's a testament to the amount of creation and shooting they have. And I do also think that they win this series, but I won't discount Jimmy getting the Heat another game. I don't know if you saw this too. I think ESPN posted it. Um, I, I believe they polled like guys around the league. Or maybe it wasn't ESPN. I don't know who posted this. They apparently polled the anonymous. Athletic. Maybe a bit. Maybe it was the Athletic. Uh, they polled anonymous NBA players and. Uh, they voted Drew, I think, best defender, and then they also voted him most underrated. And I thought that was interesting just because I felt at this point, yeah, I don't, I don't know, man. Drew Holiday's been doing his thing for, you know, four or five years now. I, that that surprised me uh, that he still got voted in. But Drew has been phenomenal, dude. He's it – really, it, it, really it really makes my heart happy, man, seeing these guys without Giannis still being able to do their thing because we are going to be able to give them some flowers. You know, oh – you play alongside Giannis, you know, you're, you know, you play along the best player in the NBA. How, how hard could it be? Um, Drew is still a very special talent. He's carrying them um, in these two games. Shout out Middleton though, too, dude. Anytime, man, dude, I just like when Middleton shots falling guys that play like that, man, pull up jump shooters. It's really fun to watch when they're locked in guys like book guys like uh, KD. I don't mean to <laughs> lump Chris Middleton into those two guys, but uh, cause Chris is a, a, a tough shot maker, you know, as it comes, all of his offense is tough shots. 
mm-hmm. but when he's knocking down his shots, it's a lot of fun to watch too. And um, so yeah, man. While Milwaukee doesn't have the best creator in the series, I think it's Jimmy hands down. I mean, they've got two and three, and then <laughs> maybe that's an interesting conversation. Carson, who's the fourth best creator in this series? <laughs> I don't know that there is a creator Joe in the scoring and playmaking sense. I mean, yeah, if you are blending the two, sure. Ingles isn't really getting himself buckets at this point anymore, but I mean, nobody else is really like creating for others. So I guess we can give it to Joe Ingles. I mean, Kyle Lowry's out there playing basketball. He had one good game in the play, and that was fun. The holiday thing is interesting because I agree. I also felt like we've come to the point where it's like we all talk about Drew Holiday. We know that he's him, especially after the title, but he has gotten even better. But then I just thought about the fact that Drew Holiday is a two-time All-Star, and those appearances have come almost a decade apart because the first one was in Philly. And I don't think there's a better two-time All-Star in NBA history. And the fact that, like, Marcus Smart has a Defensive Player of the Year, if any guard in history has deserved a Defensive Player of the Year, it is, well, Gary Payton. But then it's Drew Holiday. I mean, if you're talking about just how good are you within the scope of your position, absolutely he could be the best defender in the NBA. I just don't think he can be the most impactful because wings and bigs who can guard more positions... Drew can hold his own against anybody for a possession, right? But he's not going to be a great help side rim protector, right? Because he's 6'3", but he's so damn good. And I love Drew. So the more I think about it, I think he's the best two-time All-Star in NBA history. And I guess he's still underrated in the scope of it all. Don't disrespect Terrell Brandon like that, buddy. Is Terrell Brandon a two-time All-Star? Yikes. All right, Logan's going to look that up, and (laughs) with that, we'll wrap things up. So appreciate you guys, as always. Continue to enjoy the basketball. We will be back probably on Sunday night reacting to a whole weekend of games and Friday too. So stay tuned in for that. And, of course, stay tuned in to all of our social handles, TikTok at NerdSesh. We're dropping some new style of trivia content, more head-to-head stuff. So go ahead make sure that you – See all of those if you haven't. And then Twitter is at nerd underscore sesh. Instagram is at nerd sesh. Go join our Discord if you want to. That's at our link tree, which is in any of our social media bios and just a place where you guys can talk with us about sports, just chat pretty much at any time. So appreciate you guys as always. We also just hit 200,000 followers on TikTok today. So appreciate everybody who supports us over there and who supports us over here and enjoys the content. Thank you to all you guys. You rock. And with that, as always, I've been Carson Brabber. I've been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sesh. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, 
Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball. From growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 